0: Well, as you're taking your seat and getting settled, I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Luke chapter 4 as we continue our journey through uh, the gospel of Luke. We come this morning to a fascinating uh, exchange in the life of Jesus, a high watermark in his uh, mission and in his ministry as he was sent by his heavenly Father into the world uh, to rescue sinners and sufferers like you and me. And what goes down in this passage, what happens in this story, really... uh, sheds a spotlight on why we call Jesus Savior, why we call him Redeemer, why he is the hero of our lives as we see him engaging this exchange with uh, Satan, with his spiritual enemy uh, in this moment. There was a book written on the scene of Jesus's temptation by a guy named Russell Moore. And it was a book titled Tempted and Tried. It may be one of the best books written on this scene and on this exchange in Jesus's life. And there's one chapter in that book titled, You are on the verge of wrecking your life, especially if you don't realize it. That you're on the verge of wrecking your life, especially if you don't realize it. And then he would go on to draw an illustration about how cows are led to slaughter. And he paints a powerful picture of that moment. And I want to share his words with you because they are strong. Now, if you are a vegetarian in this room, this may be why. Uh, So I apologize in advance for what I'm about to read. And this is what he writes. He says, for a long time, cattle workers would forcefully push and prod cows into the slaughterhouse. For good reason, the cows would resist and the whole operation would be extremely difficult to carry out until one specific scientist came along and said, no, 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 the way to slaughter cows is to make them feel like everything is great as they enter the slaughterhouse. Keep the scenery the same as it is in the most peaceful moments in the cow's life. The scientists began to experiment not with prodding cows off a truck but by leading them quietly into a, onto a ramp where they walk through a squeeze chute. That's a gentle pressure device designed to mimic a mother's nuzzling touch. Then the cattle continued down the ramp onto a smoothly curbing path. No sudden turns. It was a path designed to give the cows a sense that they are going home. And as they mosey along the path, they don't even notice when their hooves are no longer touching the ground. A conveyor belt slowly, gradually lifts them upward and then, in the twinkling of an eye, a blunt instrument levels a surgical strike between their eyes. Their transition from livestock to meat and they're never aware enough to even be alarmed by it you and I may be on the verge of wrecking our lives, especially if we don't realize it. This is why the scriptures would teach you and I about what is really going on in the world around us, identifying spiritual opposition, to us and to the way that God wants to work within us and all that God plans and purposes for us. And so Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, telling Christians, you gotta be sober-minded. You gotta be alert because the devil is like a roaring lion who's prowling around seeking for sinners and sufferers like us to destroy, to devour. A very similar message is given in John chapter 10, verse 10, where we're told that Satan is a thief. And he's seeking to still and to kill and destroy that if we are not cognizant of what's going on around us, we may be on the verge of wrecking our lives. And so what you find in this story is a fascinating development in Jesus's journey because last week we witnessed his baptism. And we saw how heaven opened up and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And as Jesus is coming out of the water, the voice of his heavenly father says, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And the father would affirm Jesus' identity, verifying that he is the unique son of God, beloved by God. But then when you step into chapter 4 verse 1, things begin to develop in a surprising way. Right after he's affirmed in this way, verse 4 says, Then Jesus left the Jordan, that's where he was baptized, full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And while he is in the wilderness, we are told that he went there to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. So Jesus is affirmed, you are my beloved son. And now the same spirit that fell upon him in baptism is the same spirit leading him into the wilderness where he's going to be confronted by the devil and he will experience temptations. It's a strange thing for heaven to open up and for the voice of God to affirm who Jesus is. And yet at the same time, heaven's doors are opening up and the father's voice is being heard, hell's doors are opening up too. Hell's doors open up and another voice enters the picture. So that suddenly you have Jesus in a situation where you're wondering, who's he going to listen to? Who's he going to believe? Is he going to see himself as the beloved son of God and resist what is being thrown at him? Or is he going to listen to the voice of Satan? And so after his baptism, the spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness and there he is confronted by the devil. Now, this begs a few questions that we want to think about. Like, Why would the Spirit lead Jesus into this moment where he is tempted? Are we to draw a type of conclusion that says God tempts us? That God somehow puts us in situations where we are to be tempted? I I think we need to be very careful. And it might sound like we are uh, nitpicking language. But the difference is very important. We cannot say that God is tempting Jesus in this moment. Just as you and I should never say that God is tempting us in any moment of our lives. And the reason for that is spelled out explicitly in James chapter 1. In James chapter 1 verse 13, no one undergoing a trial or a test should say, you shouldn't draw this conclusion, no matter what you're going through. You shouldn't draw the conclusion, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil. And he himself doesn't tempt anyone. And so James one thirteen is very explicit. God does not tempt his children. But what you do see here and what you see echoed in other passages in the Old Testament is that God does test his children. He does test his children. He puts them in situations that are designed to draw things out of them that they not, might not be aware of or the other people might not be aware of, that these tests of the Lord draws things out of us. You see this in a few places in the Old Testament. You have the story of Job, where God actually presents Job to Satan, the very one who is now tempting Jesus in this story. And God would bring Job to him and say, Hey, have you considered this guy? And this is what, Jesus, what the Lord actually says in Job 1.8. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity, who fears God and turns away from evil. So Job was a man who was favored. Job, Job was a man of faith. He was a man who did things right in his life, and yet the Lord still presented him for this type of test. And what would this test, what would this trial reveal? Well, it reveals all kinds of things. But one of the things we see right off the bat in Job's story is that this test is designed to show everyone that God is sovereign, that he is sovereign over the most powerful evil force in the world, namely Satan. And so you see this exchange in Job chapter one, but you have another example in Genesis chapter 22, where we are told in chapter 22, verse one, that after these things, God tested Abraham, and that's the language used. God would test Abraham. You know Abraham, Father Abraham, the one whom God called and established his initial covenant with that was spread into the people of Israel. God would test Abraham. Now, the test God brings into Abraham's life was quite strange because he told him to take his one son, his only son, a kid named Isaac, and to go up to the top of a mountain and there offer him to God in sacrifice. Abraham complied with the Lord's will. He passed the test, so to speak, because he took Isaac and he went up to the top of the mountain and he readied the moment to sacrifice his only son, giving him back to the Lord. Only the Lord intervened and would not allow Abraham's knife to fall on his son. And you discover that the Lord never intended for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, that the Lord was testing Abraham to bring out something in Abraham that was true about him. This is what you see in Genesis 22, verse 12. Then God said, don't lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. And so the testing of the Lord in Job's life, in Abraham's life, and even when you see the testing of the Lord in the people of Israel's lives in the book of Exodus is designed to disclose what's true. It's to bring truth to the surface. That's what these tests are designed to do. I'm going to illustrate it this way. You know, sometimes my daughter Delaney, she'll insist that she doesn't need my help. And I remember several years ago when she was much littler, I bought her a mini kitchen that required assembly. There were a lot of pieces and parts to this. It was a pretty complicated thing to put together, but Delaney believed she could do it. And so she said, no, dad, I've got this. And said, okay, Delaney, if you don't need me, I'll just give you all the parts. And here's the instructions that you can't even read, but see, you can take a shot. And I stepped out of the room, and I, and I tested her, so to speak. Now, I knew she wasn't able to, to do that. I knew that she needed my help. I knew that she needed her father, but she didn't know that yet. And so what did I do? I handed her over to this test. And sure enough, I came back into the room 10 minutes later, and just chaos. Pieces and parts everywhere, and Delaney's sitting there all frustrated. And, and I just said, Delaney, if you need my help, all you have to do is ask. And she looked at me and she said, Dad, I need your help. And that's when the test did what it was designed to do because the test was designed to teach Delaney something about herself and then to draw her deeper into her relationship with me. This is one of the ways God's testing and God's trying of his people manifests in our lives. Sometimes God tests his children so that we can know that we can trust him. But what's really interesting about this story and and the, the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days, one of the most provocative things about this is that you find that Jesus is actually suffering through the story of Israel. That Jesus is actually experiencing the same pattern and the same plot line that the people of Israel experienced in the Old Testament. And so you get a sense that Jesus is here because he's come to do something that Israel couldn't do. So in Exodus chapter four, verse 22, we, the Lord would speak to the people of Israel and what does he say about them? He says, you are my beloved son. And he calls Israel his beloved son. Then right after that affirmation happens, Moses would lead Israel out of Egypt and they would cross the Red Sea. And in 1 Corinthians 10, we're told that the crossing of the Red Sea, that represented Israel's baptism. So you have affirmation, this is my beloved son. You have the crossing of the Red Sea, their baptism. And then where did they go? And then the Lord would lead Israel into the wilderness where they would spend 40 years. And we are told multiple times in the book of Exodus that the Lord was testing his people. He was testing them as he journeyed through the wilderness. And what you find is that many occasions Israel did not rise to the challenge. That Israel failed the tests of God over and over and over again. So you have that story in the Old Testament. Now that story is popping up again, that plot line in Jesus. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You are being baptized in this moment. And then the spirit leading him into the wilderness where he is tested and subsequently tempted by his rival, And so you follow this plot line and it brings you to a point where you want to ask the question, will Jesus treat God as his rival or will he treat God as his father or trust God as his father? And that's the big question that this narrative puts before us today. Will we treat God as a rival when we are being tested or tried? Will we treat God as a rival when we are being tempted by Satan or will we trust him as our father? And so that's the question put before Jesus in this moment as readers of this narrative are reading to figure out, okay, what will Jesus do? Will he do better than Israel did? But not only do you find Jesus suffering through the story of Israel in this moment, you, have, you go even further and you say Jesus here is identifying with the human condition. That he too is being tested. He too endured difficulties. He too was tempted to sin against God. And so we have a savior here. We have Jesus here who is identifying with the human condition by enduring all that he is enduring in this moment. And so what happens? Will Jesus treat God as a rival or trust God as a father? The answer to that question is important not only for the people of Israel... The answer to that question is important for every person in this room and subsequently every person on the planet. And so as the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, we're not going to say that God tempts his children, but we will say that God tests his children. But when he gets into the wilderness, we're told at the end of verse 2 that Satan or the devil would tempt Jesus for 40 days. And so we look at the nature of the temptation beginning at the end of verse two, picking up there. We're told that Jesus ate nothing during those days and when they were over, he was hungry. And this is when the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. That was temptation number one. And one way you might summarize this temptation is that Jesus is being tempted towards what we might call self-gratification. He's being tempted towards gratifying his own wants irrespective of God's will. So Satan says, if you're really hungry, you could tell these stones, you could turn these stones into bread and satisfy that hunger. And so you have this moment where Jesus is being tempted to pursue his want over God's will and I can't help but relate to that temptation. This is a temptation we all face more times than we can count the temptation to pursue our wants irrespective of God's will, especially and uh, exclusively when our wants are not in sync with God's will. And we have a choice to make. Where are we going to go? Are we going to try to gratify our desires and satisfy them apart from God's will? Or will we trust God and believe that his will will ultimately gratify those desires in the end? You see, the Lord has deposited legitimate desires in the hearts of every human being. And these legitimate desires are to be gratified in accordance with his will, with his plan, with his purpose. But the temptation we face, especially when we get impatient or we get hungry or we're feeling weak, is to try to take matters into our own hands and gratify our wants apart from God's will. And so we can take a legitimate desire and seek to gratify it in an illegitimate way. For example, let's say you are someone who has a legitimate desire for companionship. You want to be married, but that desire has not been gratified in your life yet for reasons only known to the Lord that has not been satisfied. And so you're wondering, well, can I wait any longer? And you're tempted to kind of grab the steering wheel out of the hands of the Lord and to take the first exit ramp you come across next, only to find that exit ramp kind of spitting you in a situation that the Lord did not hope or design for you to be in. And if you had only waited a couple more ramps down the street, you might have found yourself with a legitimate desire being satisfied God's way and not your way in the sense that you're taking matters into your own hands. Or you might think of it this way. I've been a pastor of this church for 10 years now and and there are legitimate desires in my heart for how I want to serve the Lord and What I want to see the Lord do, some of those desires have not been gratified yet. And so the temptation is to take matters into my own hands, to kind of force the issue on certain fronts. That's the temptation, but will I resist that? If I am to resist that, how do I overcome that? If you are to resist that temptation, how are you to overcome that? Well, you consider the story and you look at Jesus' response. Jesus responds to these words from the devil and he says, It is written, man must not live by bread alone. And if you were to look up that reference in the Old Testament, you would see uh, a longer, more words there. That man shall not live by bread alone. But then it goes on to say, but he shall live by the very word of God. And so Jesus in that moment decides to trust his father. And he says, I hear what you're saying. And I could turn these stones to bread, but I'm not going to do so. I'm going to trust my father. Because man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then that brings us to the second temptation. The second temptation, as you keep reading, verse 5. So the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. So if the first temptation was self-gratification, you might summarize this temptation as self-exaltation. That the devil brings Jesus to this moment, gives him a vision of all the kingdoms of the world, and he says they can all be yours, just bow down and worship me. The temptation is for Jesus to exalt himself, but do you know what would happen if Jesus did? If he exalts himself in this moment and he claims all the kingdoms of the world for himself, do you realize that his self-exaltation would come at the expense of sinners and sufferers like you and me? His temptation is to be exalted to the exclusion of others. But the story of the gospel is for Jesus to be exalted in such a way for the inclusion of others. So that sinners and sufferers like us could share in his glory, share in his exaltation. But in order for that to happen, Jesus can't grab glory apart from suffering. And this is the heart of the temptation. The devil telling Jesus, look, you can have glory without having to go to the cross. But the will of the Father was for Jesus to go to the cross. And it is through the cross where he would be exalted. And it is through the cross where his exaltation would then include people like you and me. This is what we discover in 1 Peter 5, verse 6. When we are reminded as followers of Jesus that there's coming a day when we will be exalted. So we're told, humble yourselves now. Humble yourselves now under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Be patient. Wait for your exaltation to come when the moment's right. That's what Jesus would exercise in this moment. That's what he would trust. And that's what you and I trust in order to resist this temptation too. So you had self-gratification. Jesus trusted his father and overcame it. You have self-exaltation. Jesus waited for his exaltation. He waited to do it through the cross so that he inc- could include you and in me and not exclude us. And then that brings us to the third Temptation. Third temptation, we might describe with the words, the temptation to self-justify. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus answered, the devil "It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Before I get to that third temptation, let me just point out that this is the second time Jesus has quoted scripture. And it's interesting that the word of God who took on flesh is quoting what's already been written. You realize that Jesus being the the unique son of God, the word enfleshed, anything he said at this point could be taken as scripture right he is God's word and so everything he says could be that but yet Jesus is deliberately quoting what's already been written because this is one of the fundamental ways that you and I resist temptation is by learning to say what's already been said by trusting in what God has already written and put before us this is Jesus's example so he does that again here in verse eight But then you pick up verse nine so the devil took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, and you find that the devil quotes scripture too, but he takes passages out of context and misapplies them, and this is what he says. He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. Do not test the Lord your God. Now, here's what I want you to think about. The temptation of self-justification. Two of the three times the devil challenges Jesus' identity, he says to him, if you are the Son of God, essentially he's saying, if you are the Son of God, prove it. Justify your existence. Justify your identity. Prove that you are the Son of God. And in this moment, Cast yourself off this temple and God will swoop in and he will rescue you. And to tempt Jesus in this direction, the, the, the devil twists scripture. And so we think about what this means for us and understand that you and I often try to justify ourselves as God's children. We find the temptation to try to prove God in our lives by putting him to, te- to the test in different kinds of ways. And sometimes what that means is we twist scripture to say what we want it to say rather than letting scripture say what it actually, what it actually says. Here's an example of that. A couple of years ago, I was cued into a video of a conversation between two uh, television preachers. And they were talking to each other about uh, why they've collected a lot of money from their followers A lot of money went into their ministries, why they were taking that money and then using it to purchase for themselves a luxurious personal jet. Now, you know, jets are jets and that kind of is what it is, but what I really want you to think about is why they said it. They would go on in the conversation to justify themselves and say, we can spend the money this way because we are the children of God. And then they would take an obscure reference in the Old Testament, a clause of a verse, and they would use that to justify what they wanted to do so that they could proceed to purchase this luxurious jet for themselves. So it's not just they are buying jets. It's that they were buying jets and trying to justify it by appealing to God's word and twisting it in ways that God's word wasn't written. And I remember watching this on, unfold in the, on the television and just getting angry. I was getting angry as I would see this exchange because it was clear to me or it seemed to me, my perspective was this was a demonically inspired conversation. It was demonically inspired where they were doing the very things that the devil does to Jesus in this passage. But as my anger began to increase, the spirit checked me. The Holy Spirit calmed me down and he said, wait a second, be careful. He would go on to say that you were tempted to do similar things just in different ways. And the Spirit warned me against only hearing in the Scriptures what I want to hear in the Scriptures. That's my temptation too. I might not be looking to buy luxury liners, but I am tempted to only hear in Scripture what I want to hear. I am tempted to treat the Bible in a way that justifies the decisions that I'm making, even if what I'm using to justify those decisions is nowhere in the same ballpark as the decision I'm making. And so this was the exchange. uh, The devil tempting Jesus to justify himself, to prove that he is the son of God, and he tries to use scripture to do it. But listen to what Jesus says. Jesus responds by quoting a much better passage. A passage that says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And he succeeds in this moment in a remarkable way. Now, another dynamic that I want you to think about is that this is one of the reasons why you and I must seek to discern God's will and understand God's word in the context of community. That we shouldn't seek to discern God's will and and study God's word in isolation from the community of the redeemed, the people of faith that we've been grafted into as followers of Jesus. Recognize that the devil approached Jesus when he was hungry, when he was um, tired, and when he was isolated. Now, Jesus succeeded, but I doubt you will. Which is why we don't follow Jesus' example in this kind of way of seeking isolation from the people of God as we're trying to discern God's will. No, we lean into the people of God to read the scriptures, to study the scriptures, to be checked by the scriptures. We sink into this dynamic. And we recognize that the devil often approaches us when we are tired, when we are hungry, and when we're alone. He tries to pick us off often, which is why being disciplined in your commitment to the body, being connected to community matters for you. It matters for you and it matters for me. It's how we discern God's will and study God's word. But Jesus responds in this moment triumphantly and he overcomes. He resists temptation again. He resisted the first temptation by trusting his father. He resisted the second temptation by waiting to be exalted, exercising patience. And he resists this third temptation by resting in his identity. He felt no need to test God. He felt no need to prove himself to the devil. If you are a child of God by faith in Jesus... You have no need to prove yourself to anyone either. You don't have to justify your existence. You don't have to flatter and impress the people around you. You have no need to justify your existence to anyone. This is, one of the, this is part of the freedom of being the children of God. This is why we can rest in our identity that he says to us what he said to Jesus. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Why is that? Well, he says that because we are in Christ. We've put our faith in this Jesus. We've come to a point at the end of the story where we recognize that Jesus did what Israel failed to do in the Old Testament that he passed the test, he resisted temptation, and in so doing, Jesus triumphed for God's children, that he won for us. This is why we call him savior. This is why we put our faith in Jesus because his obedience would run past this moment. He wasn't just obedient here. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And after dying on the cross, we are told that the father then highly exalted him giving him the name that is above every name so that we would call him Lord, see him a savior, look to him to be our hero. This is what we do, putting our faith in Christ, recognizing that Jesus succeeds where everyone else fails, that his obedience matters for you and me. The fact that Jesus refused to treat God as a rival but trusted him as a father, that matters for you and for me. This is Romans 5, verse 19. For just as through one man's disobedience, that's a reference to Adam, just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Because Jesus was obedient, succeeding where all others fell, this is why we call him Savior. This is why we relate to God through him. We put our faith in him, trusting him, and he enables us and helps us endure whatever tests may come our way and overcome any temptations that fall before us. Because not only does Jesus succeed where everyone else fails, Jesus supplies you and I with a strategy, a strategy so that we too might resist temptation. And remain faithful to God, even when things get hard and difficult. So you find that in Christ, we now trust God as our father. We trust him as father, even when he says to us, I'm not going to take that cup from you. Even when you get to a point in your relationship with God where he reveals that his will for you is to take up a cross. Even then, you can trust your father. Why? Because exaltation is on the other side of that. And said, not only do we trust God as our father, we wait to be exalted and we endure whatever the Lord calls us to endure for the sake of loving our neighbors as ourselves and making the gospel known to those around us for the sake of displaying faithfulness in the faithfulness of Jesus all the days of our lives, waiting to be exalted and not usurping the process. But not only in Christ do we trust the father, we wait to be exalted. In Christ, we rest in our identity. We just settle into the fact that we are the sons and the daughters of God. Enjoying who God has declared us to be. Enjoying the Father's favor no matter what. Being set free from the pressure to perform. Being set free from the pressure to prove ourselves to anyone. Recognizing that we no longer have to because in Christ we are who God created us to be. So we don't have to be anyone else. And there's freedom in that. Martin Luther was a famous reformer back in the day who was asked the question, how did he resist temptation? How would he overcome the devil's schemes in his life? And this is what he said. He said, well, when the devil comes knocking upon the door of my heart and asks who lives here, the Lord Jesus goes to the door. And Jesus says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he's moved out. Now I do. And this is the reality for all who are trusting in Jesus, who've put their faith in Christ Christ now lives in you. And you, by faith, now live in him. And because of that relationship, you can now trust God, not just as your creator, but as your father. And because of that relationship, you can wait to be exalted because Jesus' future is your future. And because of this relationship, you can rest in who God created you to be. Just be his child. And enjoy the freedom that comes with that. So the question for us today, and really every day, am I going to wake up today and treat God as my rival? Or am I going to trust him as my father? Am I going to see him as a rival when life gets hard and he's against me? Or am I going to trust that he's a father who's leading me through this because there's glory on the other side of it? Am I going to treat him as a rival when I'm tempted to self-gratify or I'm tempted to self-exalt or I'm tempted to self-justify. Am I gonna treat him as a rival in that moment? Or will I trust him as my father? That's the question we wanna ask ourselves and that's the question we wanna follow Jesus into saying God is my father and I am a beloved child of his. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace? As we consider these truths, we pray that your Holy Spirit would take them and ignite them in our hearts. I pray that these truths would not just lodge themselves in our heads, but that they would drop into our heart so that we would be equipped on a daily basis to trust you as our Father. Trusting you through thick and thin. When life is good, when life is hard, you are our Father. And I pray that you would help us to sink into that. Give us grace to grow in light of that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.